uh, you are you've been or are a McDowell Colony uh, fellow yourself, as I understand it, and um, and so uh, just tell me what um, you know personally is your feeling about McDowell, and uh, and uh, and the uh, colony's decision to give this award to Sonny Rollins. McDowell Colony is uh, the magic kingdom for writers and painters and composers. It's it's an incredible uh, place because uh, you go up there basically for the the solitude of working in your own space, a cabin, basically. And, uh, you know, you, you congregate with other people at dinner or at breakfast, but basically you're alone with your own uh, creativity, your own ideas. And uh, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a chance to sort of get away from your usual surroundings. You don't have... Uh, telephone there's no television i I'm, I'm told they, i haven't been up there in a number of years but they're not even uh uh wi-fi so uh it's basically just a chance to spend uh, a lot of hours a day working and i've been a colonist there twice in the past i'm doing my third residency this summer and uh i always get a lot of work done there and that's i think the experience of most colonists now um uh, McDowell was founded by uh, Edward McDowell and his wife. Um, uh, he, of course, is composer, and uh, to, to a Wild Rose is one of his better-known songs, one that uh, Sonny Rollins has uh, has performed over the years. Um, um, I'm curious, do you know of other jazz artists who have been McDowell Colony Fellows? Oh, no, th- that's the that's why this is such a big news story, especially in the jazz world. No, Sonny is very definitely no, the I, first. No, I don't mean um, medalist. I mean a Colony Fellow like, like you have been and many others. Oh, the, yeah, there have been a few musicians who have been fe- – uh, Fred Hirsch, is a, I know, is one who's gone up there a number of times. But uh, – um, I, I, there are other there are other composers and musicians, but most of them who go up there have been classical. I think they're hoping and uh, that uh, the attention that's going to be brought to McDowell because of they're giving a medal to Sonny Rollins will attract other jazz musicians. But you know, most musicians uh, in jazz, it's difficult for them to just say, "I'm going to take two, three weeks, a month off, and go work in a cabin." Um, usually, they've got a you know, keep busy with gigs. So it's uh, it's really a luxury to be able to take that kind of time off. But I think that the Sonny's uh, award will definitely bring more attention to uh, to the jazz community uh, and it, and the possibilities that McDowell offers it. Now, McDowell has awarded the annual medal um, for 50 years. There have been 50 mm-hmm. previous recipients. Sonny Rollins, the 51st, is the first ever jazz artist to be awarded the medal. What... You know, what does that say about, not really McDowell, but about the hierarchy of the American arts establishment, the fact that the medal has been given out during a time frame when Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong, for instance, were very much alive and making uh, great music, and now finally in 2010 awarding it for the first time to another, of course, most deserving jazz artist in Sonny Rollins. But overall, what what is that... um, how are you impressed in terms of what that means about the American arts hierarchy uh, and establishment? Well, I've always thought that uh, the American arts hierarchy was, uh, you know, the devil itself. But my experience over the last, you know, nearly 40 years of writing about jazz and and observing the scene is that uh, you assault the Citadel one 
door at a time. And, uh, you know, now now that it is no longer the the popular music that it was once, now that it's no longer a, a music of contrary movements, uh, that it's become sort of standardized in a sense, uh, the universities have finally discovered it. So it's it's very well uh, situated in, in, in the academia. Uh, you know, Lincoln Center started a jazz uh, uh, program that's doing well. Uh, the United States government is finally giving out jazz master's awards. I mean, the, all of these things come ludicrously late. But I think one thing that's important to remember is that these establishments are controlled. Uh, they're not monoliths. They're con they're controlled by people. And uh, in the past, at McDowell, for example, the jury consisted almost exclusively of people in the classical world who awarded, made those awards uh, to their colleagues, to people they knew, people they admired. And one of the ways that they knew that they would change that, I mean, they, I think they were very conscious of the fact that this was had been an oversight for a long time, was to ask somebody like me to chair the committee. And uh, you know, I chose the jurors, and I chose people who were going to go along with, you know, and be really enthusiastic and excited about making the prize to a jazz musician. So I don't hold any uh, brief against McDowell. I, on the contrary, I think this is just a terrific step for jazz. Uh, it took them a long time to make it, but I hope it won't be the last. There are a number of other musicians clearly deserving, Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Wayne Shorter, I mean, you could go on and on. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a beginning, another another assault on, on the establishment. Now, as a chairperson of the committee this year, was Sonny Rollins your primary objective? In, uh... Absolutely. For me, you know, we talked about all these other people, and, and uh, but, you know, I, I had a couple, of, I had an agenda, and, and part of it was I wanted to choose a jazz musician who really is associated with jazz, who who does not have the imprimatur of the classical world, as, for example, Ornette Coleman does, and to some degree Cecil Taylor. I didn't want somebody uh, who's also got uh, one leg in the pop world, like Herbie Hancock or Wayne Shorter through uh, Weather Report and so forth. I wanted a, a, a real, honest-to-God jazz giant who had devoted his entire life to this music. And uh, there's just nobody else in in his league, I think, who's who's alive and, and working today. I mean, Rollins, I, I've been following him all my life. He's never stayed still for a moment. I just came back from uh, the Umbria Jazz Festival in Perugia, and he has a new band, and they played a two-and-a-half-hour set without break, um, ba basically all most of it Sonny soloing. And, I, you know, he was playing things I've never heard him play before, and it was absolutely thrilling. And the concert that's coming up, his 80th birthday concert uh, in New York City on September 10th, he's got all these great guest stars who are going to appear with him, like Jim Hall, who recorded with him in the early 60s. But uh, I think people are going to be just blown away because it's not going to be a nostalgia event. They're going to just see that this incredible guy who, anytime you phone him at home, he's got the saxophone in his lap. I mean, he still practices hours every day, and he keeps coming up with new things to do. Indeed, I saw him a month ago at Montreal, and I've seen him about three dozen times, and it was as vital uh, and fresh as ever, and the new band uh, sounded fabulous and uh, a beautiful I, hall. I do think and, this is the best band he's had in many and, and, years. I'm really and, excited. And Russell Malone, I'm assuming, is still with him. Well, Ru yep. yeah, actually, Russell had a, a, a conflicting gig with Ron Carter this summer, so Peter Bernstein oh, sat right. in, who's a wonderful guitar player. But yeah, Russell's back, and uh, 
you know, I, just his presence in the band tells you a lot. And Sammy Figueroa now in, on percussion has really sort of cleaned out the bottom of the, you know, the rhythm section is much straighter. And uh, he's got a terrific young uh, drummer in Colby uh, Watson. Mm, and Bobby Crancher, mm -hmm. of course, is still there after, what, I don't know, clear, almost yes. 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's just a, a great band. And, and Sonny Rollins is like, uh, you know, to me... He's just one of these figures who's uh, borderline Homeric. I mean, forget the borderline. He just is. He's one of the gods, and he's a he's a heroic figure. Uh, you know, at Montreal, I heard Sonny do something I'd never heard before, which is that he closed the show with two verses of a classic blues, which he which oh, he yes. sang. Which yeah. he sang. I know. I've not heard him do that yet, but but a lot of people in Perugia were, were talking about this. So I don't know how frequent a, a part of his sets that will be, but it's just another instance of him doing something that you don't mm -hmm, expect. Indeed. Um, back to Rollins in a minute, but let's get back to McDowell for just a moment and the awarding of the medal this year. And while mm -hmm. this may bring greater attention to McDowell among uh, you know jazz musicians in the jazz world, do you think that it may have a kind of rippling effect in terms of other elite arts organizations of this kind and their decision to take a look at jazz um, in the way that McDowell is this year? Well, we can only hope. I mean, you know, I have written so many times attacking the Pulitzer Committee, which to me is just an absolute joke. Uh, the fact that they've given a few awards to people who have been dead dead, mind you, for 25 years or more, uh, to me, is not a step in the right direction. And uh, they continue to neglect, uh, you know, they gave it to Ornette Coleman, mm -hmm. and I guess they felt that that was, uh, you know, their duty for several years. Um, but, uh, you know, the um, uh, a lot of institutions, the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Uh, Which McDowell was one of the founders of. Yeah, but, I mean, you look at the roles, and, and they have, you know, there's a couple of musicians who've been brought in, usually those with some kind of classical imprimatur. Um, and, you know, I remember writing an attack on the American Academy, and, and Kurt Vonnegut, who I had known when I was an undergraduate, wrote me a letter, you know, basically saying it's better to be inside the tent trying to change things than to be outside, you know, pissing on them. And I said, Kurt... You 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 tell me as soon as there is a change, as soon as a bunch of jazz musicians and composers have been uh, inducted, and I will write the biggest apology in the voice you've ever seen. And, you know, that was 20-some-odd years ago, and nothing's changed. Well, I wonder if there isn't something in the improvised, you know, essentially unedited nature of jazz and the autonomy that all of the players have in the ensemble that... Um, uh, you know, that really underscores the sort of spontaneous act of creation that jazz embodies that is, um, you know, that makes the arts establishment just weary of this um, of this form that, uh, that what the arts establishment requires, whether we're talking about music or painting or poetry or literature, is a finished, controlled project, a finished, controlled well, piece of work, and the fluid, improvised nature of jazz is just kind of antithetical to that approach. Well, one guy who I thought nailed it uh, was Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein said that the reason jazz uh, musicians don't, do not get the respect is because historically instrumentalists do not get the same respect as composers. And uh, in jazz, as you know, the improviser is the composer more often than not. 
Um, you know, Lester Young created solos that people know by heart. They're magnificent compositions. They haven't dated. But you don't think of him as, as a tunesmith. I mean, he wrote a couple of famous riffs, uh, or Stan Getz, or any number of musicians. They do their composition within their improvisations. And I think you're exactly right. Uh, this A lot of people in the classical world just don't understand it. I remember uh, a classical critic, I don't need to say his name, um, who I believe won a Pulitzer Prize, writing in a New York paper that he did not understand how anyone could take improvisation seriously. Now, come on, anybody who knows anything about classical music knows that Beethoven was an improviser, that Bach was an improviser, that theme and variations, which is the heart of jazz, has also been the heart of classical music. Uh, that even in opera, there are all kinds of embellishments and, and uh, uh, you know, improvised recitatives that are possible. So this is just mostly ignorance speaking. It, you know, I, when I was an undergraduate, I remember meeting Harold Schoenberg, who was the music critic at the Times, mm -hmm. who was boastful about uh, despising jazz. He once wrote a piece about uh, the music that uh, was on tapes for the astronauts, the first astronauts who were, you know, going into space before the the moon landing and all of that. They had made musical tapes, and he described you know, Mozart and Schubert and blah blah blah. And then he had a sentence that said, "Also Ellington and other folk music." <laughs> so you know, these people are from another planet. They just have not. They have managed. Uh, to become authorities on 19th century and early 20th century music and then ignore the entire era of their own lives. There was an interview with Isaiah Berlin years ago in which someone was talking about sort of the improvised nature of something or other, and the, uh, you know, the interviewer said, well, you know, you mean like jazz? And Berlin said, no, we're talking about music. <laughs> That's Isaiah Berlin, yeah. one of my heroes. Indeed, I'm sorry to indeed, hear that. Indeed, of course, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, um, such condescension or just plain ignorance of the music on the part of the establishment. And I think it's still really, you know, uh, a very active kind of condescension toward it uh, at best. Well, but, um, you know, in the 20s, Aldous Huxley wrote this really vicious attack on jazz. But if you read it, you realize that he thinks jazz is Al Jolson because mm -hmm. there was a movie called The Jazz Singer. So a lot of people are very confused about mm -hmm. what jazz is. Um, you know, certainly in the 1920s, you could have debated a lot of, you know, a lot of people thought Paul Whiteman and Gert, well, I'll tell you, when I was a kid, uh, my parents bought me, I think when I was seven, eight years old, the World Book Encyclopedia. And uh, the entry for jazz, I can recite in its entirety to you verbatim. It says, Jazz, see Gershwin George. <laughs> and this is 1956 yeah, edition. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, you know, and on the other hand, some of those writers back in the early days, the 20s, uh, who uh, were critical of jazz also were very insightful about it. What they didn't like or respect was actually kind of true about the music. And I find that sometimes ironic to encounter, that uh, they were very perceptive about what made jazz new and novel and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of anathema to them. But some That's got right. it. Um, you know, talking about the Hot Fives or Ellington, not just, uh, you know, the quasi-jazz of Paul Whiteman or Gershwin or whatever. Well, one of my favorite critics was the legendary classical music critic of the nation, B.H. Hagen. And Hagen loved that stuff. He was very good on pre-war jazz. And yet his colleagues would always be attacking him because he didn't like uh, avant-garde classical music. But, it, but he was at least plugged into the 20th century to the degree that he knew Armstrong and Ellington were major, major gift, gifted people. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the Schoenbergs and the Donald Henehans and, the, and that group... Uh, 
uh, basically didn't feel any obligation to even look into mm-hmm. it. Yes. Now, I know that you know Sonny Rollins personally, and there's been a kind of, uh, I would imagine, a kind of uh, dialogue between the two of you for many years. And mm. Sonny, I mean, I, I've written about Sonny myself and produced, uh, or, uh, you know, produced a reissue recording of his work years ago for RC- uh, Which the one? Uh, Tenor Titan Anthology and RCA, uh, Victor. You know, it was a selection of the oh, yeah. uh, RCA great. recordings that um, that I did about a decade ago. Um, in any event... Um, uh, Rollins uh, strikes me as unique among jazz musicians that I know of, at least, in that he is, on the one hand, so engaged and attentive to the sort of jazz-savvy, critical, um, you know, insiders who know him or or mm-hmm. who celebrate him and proselytize on his behalf, and at the same time, that you know, bridging that gap between them and the real populist instinct that seems, you know, to be true to Sonny Rollins' nature... And I, that's just a fascinating element of the man that I've long observed and, and kind of wondered over, and I wonder about you yourself. I agree. I, I've often compared him in essays to Louis Armstrong for, for just that reason, because I think he stands outside of any particular idiom. You know, if you think about the Louis Armstrong all-stars of the 1950s, what genre does that f- It's certainly not Dixieland. Mm-hmm. It's not traditional New Orleans. It's not swing. It's not bebop. What is it? It's Louis Armstrong exactly. music. And I think that's where Rollins has been. I, you know, a lot of people, they get all teary-eyed about Rollins' work in the 50s, and they don't bother with anything later. I think his really great period begins in the late 70s uh, <laughs> when his sound just becomes, you know, monumental. And he just accepts the fact that his music lives most of all not in the recording studio but in concert in stadiums um he loves interacting with audiences and uh you know he's developed a kind of music that just it just doesn't sound like anything else but to go back to his uh, the canniness you were referring to let me tell you about the first time i met him because this this story i think says so much about the guy he was uh playing at the half uh where is it the half note, yeah, after they had moved to Midtown Manhattan. And so this was about 1974. And uh, I was there with a wonderful critic named Ira Gittler. Mm-hmm. And Ira, of course, knew Sonny, mm-hmm. you know, since the beginning, had actually produced some of his sessions at Prestige. So Ira introduced me, and he said, uh, Gary just started writing for The Voice. I'd been there for, I don't know, a couple of months at best. And uh, Sonny started complaining about this review that he had gotten in The Voice a few weeks ago. And I had read that review, and it was a total rave. And I said, I said, what bothered you about that review? It was very favorable. And he said, yes, but we played very badly. And if they can't tell when you're playing badly, why should you believe them when they say you're playing good? (laughs) Now, that's Sonny. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I remember first meeting him, and at the time I knew Max Roach and Archie Shepp, especially well through my you know, work here at UMass. And um, so I just said, you know, friend of Max, friend of Archie. And he said, oh, well, you probably don't like my music then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And uh, I will say, though, you know, since you mentioned Archie, that and and let me let me put it as a question. You tell me, uh, do you think there's a saxophone player alive who does not reflect the influence of Sonny Rollins? Not that I would want to hear. I don't think it's possible. I don't, no matter where you come from, if whether you're a Coltrane guy or a Stan Getz guy, there's no way that something Rollins has, I mean, just the way he opened up the bottom register mm, of the horn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you can't get away from him. He's, he's a huge dynamic figure. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, um, 
a couple of years ago, uh, you heard uh, Sonny playing uh, East of the Sun at B.B. King's mm. Club. You wrote about this, and uh, you wondered why no one else can play like that. You talked about the fluent nature of Sonny's approach to a ballad like East of the Sun and uh, why no one else can play like that. I wonder, wh- why do you suppose that is? I think it comes back again to his authority, which, again, reminds me of Armstrong. Um, he, he, first of all, he, he, he practices so much. You know, a lot of musicians, they pick a tune, they like the changes. Maybe they like the melody, too. But after the first chorus, they get rid of the melody, and they start just playing on the changes. Um, Sonny Rollins, you always feel that if he chooses a tune, there's a reason for it, that he's given a lot of thought to it. And uh, by the time he's willing to present it in concert, um, he knows it in so many different ways. He, and he's not... One of the reasons he's so incredible live in a way that he isn't uh, in the studio is because time is different live. If you're in a concert and Sonny gets into a thing which he will occasionally do where you feel he's completely stuck like a like a car that's, you know, in a mud drift and it, you're pressing on the gas but you can't quite roll out. And, then, and, and he will work this for two or three minutes until finally he figures the way to get out of the chorus. And the audience, of course, as soon as he does that, just roars and goes completely crazy. Now, in, an, in, a, in a concert, this is very exciting. I mean, what's two or three minutes? But on a record, you know, you'd want to cut your throat. Uh, it, time it holds very differently. But he has this courage. He has this willingness always to play honestly. I, I mean, I've seen him play, but, you know, I, very poorly. Uh, but he doesn't play poorly in a conventional way. He's never wrote. He never says, oh, I'm uninspired, so I'll just run the changes. He will do something else weird. Like he'll play the, I once saw him play the head of uh, Take the A Train for more than half an hour. <laughs> I mean, he just couldn't get out of the head because he's, he's that honest a musician. He, 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 you know, he has to have the inspiration and, uh, and, and the sense of, of, of excitement and, and, and spontaneity that, you know, is what makes this music incredible and what makes him such a master of it. Yeah, I, I mean, very, I quite agree. Uh, you know, and as, as I say, I've seen Sonny 30 to 35 times, never, ever wrote. I've, I have seen, I've seen no. him stuck. I've seen him look uninspired and tired, but never wrote. Yeah. He is struggling, you know. Right, and considering the nature of his virtuosity, mm-hmm. it's quite obvious that if he were a different kind of personality, he could run the changes better than almost anyone. And and you know what? Those of us who've seen him 30, 35 times, we might know. Most of the audience would not. It's like uh, Artie Shaw said, uh, you know, if I don't practice for a day, I know it. If I don't practice for two days, the band knows it. If I don't practice for three days, the audience will know it. And, uh, you know, Sonny, Sonny could go through all of the motions of playing variations on the theme, and, and very few people in the, in the audience would feel that uh, they weren't getting their money's worth. Indeed, yeah. And uh, you've compared him with Louis Armstrong. Um, I read something recently. This was an interview that I had on file from years ago that Bob Blumenthal had done with Sonny in the Boston Phoenix. And uh, yeah. Sonny said, I'd like to think that jazz can be played in a way that you can hear the old as well as the new. At least that's how I try to play and what I do professionally. I listen to Louis Armstrong and hear something that I want to be able to hear in anything that's called jazz. Well, that's what I love about him. Uh, you know, he went through this period for actually quite a few years, where he was really being pressured to 
play some kind of fusion to attract a broader audience. And he tried everything. I mean, he, he made a couple of records that I can't even listen to. Horn Culture, I think, is a record that never should have been released. Uh, and, uh, you know, he played Stevie Wonder tunes and he played the Edward McDowell. He did, he did a little bit of everything. He worked with a bagpipe player. You know, he tried different instruments. Um, and then suddenly he just came back there's a line in Edward Albee's play, The Zoo Story, uh, where one of the characters says, sometimes you have to go a long distance out of your way to come back a short distance correctly. And I think that's what happened. Sonny just came back realizing he does not want to jettison swing, exciting rhythms. He does not want to jettison great chord changes. He does not want to jettison the great songs that he grew up with and loves. And, and Sonny knows the classic songbook as well as anybody I've ever encountered. I mean, he knows songs so obscure, you can't believe it. Um, I mean, he once said to me he'd like to do an album of Robin and Ranger. I mean, who says that? People say Cole Porter or Murphy Berlin, but Robin and Ranger? Uh, you know, and, and in fact, he's, he's in recent years, he's recorded Moon of Monocora mm -hmm. and Sweet Lalani, and he can really make them work mm -hmm. for him. You know, he grew up listening to the radio, and he loves that stuff. But at the same time, time, having gone through this long period of, of, of a sort of, you know, post-bop gestation in the 70s, he's also become a really avant-garde player, I think. I mean, to me, uh, he, his playing is so free. You, you, you know, he can go, he knows how to resolve anything. So he can go so far out and then come back correctly uh, within a chorus. And uh, he's got a band that, that knows that their primary job is just to follow him, just to try to keep up. Bobby Cranshaw once said to me, there are some nights that Sonny plays so many notes that he can't find notes to play on the bass that don't double what Sonny's already doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I like, though, that you emphasize the band um, and underscoring that in connection with, you know, the avant-garde Sonny and the searching and experimental Sonny, because to me, what makes that work is that the harmonic pattern of the tune is always present. If the rest of the mm -hmm. players were playing freer, I think it would be a different experience altogether. But it's almost yes. like there is just this sound soundboard behind Sonny that makes all of that experimentation possible. Just seeing him play uh, They Say It's Wonderful a few weeks ago, I was amazed mm -hmm. at how short and stabbing so many of the phrases were that he was playing. He was almost in a kind of duet with the bass line at times and then with the oh, drummer at He does that a lot, yeah. Yeah, sometimes he'll just walk over yep. to the uh, drums and, and just try to get a conversation going. Uh, yeah, he's very unpredictable that way. Gosh, I remember uh, a long, long time ago, uh, a critic who just completely did not get Sonny said that he thought he was terribly overrated and how could anyone take him seriously and listen to this recording. There were whole measures where he doesn't play anything and what he was doing was trading fours, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which is having a conversation with another musician, sure. basically trading four bar exchanges. And, uh, you know, this is a critic. He doesn't know that. Uh, but, you know, Sonny, it, like another connection between Sonny and, and Armstrong is that if you remember, Louis Armstrong got terrible, vicious reviews for most of his career. People were always complaining about something. Either he was too popular or he wasn't popular enough or, you know. And uh, Sonny's had to go with that a lot. But he always remains his own man. And in the long run, I think uh, I think most of the naysayers have come around. The album he put out... Um, I guess it's two years now, called Roadshows, Volume mm -hmm. 1. I can tell you just from talking to my colleagues that that album turned around more people mm -hmm. 
because a lot of people, you know, who don't live on the East Coast or are not in cities where Sonny performs, they don't know anything except the recordings. And so they were sort of cynical about all the raves we were, every time he did a concert in New York, I would go just, you know, crazy in the voice. And I'd always get letters from people, you know, say in the Midwest, say, you know, you're out of your mind, that's not possible. But when they finally released some of the highlights of these concerts on this album, Roadshows, suddenly everybody began to see what we were talking about. Yes. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed and I've heard, you know, complaints uh, of this nature many times about Sonny, uh, you know, in the concert settings especially, is folks will come, they haven't seen Sonny, or they're a little naive about the the art and the idiom, and they express a kind of displeasure that Sonny plays 97% of the solos that it's not a kind of egalitarian experience of round the horn on every tune. And um, and Armstrong, you know, similarly, I mean, with the All-Stars, of course, there was a little bit more distribution, but essentially, you know... You didn't, go, you didn't come to exactly. see Joe Darrensburg. <laughs> you came to see Louis <laughs> that's Armstrong. That's what I said. You know, that's what I invariably yeah. say is, like, they're just a supporting cast, you know. That's right. Um, Sonny um, has likened, uh, or he, he's... He's compared his rhythmic attack to speech-like patterns. You know, mm-hmm. and I was reading this in the context of Sonny's reflections on the Gunther Schuller, you know, the famous uh, uh, critical piece on... Thematic improvisation. Exactly, and how um, uh, Sonny, uh, you know, bore down a little bit in that and reflected on the more speech-like patterns that his style, um, you know, emulates or is influenced by. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, he, I, I did an interview with him recently on stage at the CUNY Graduate Center, and I think he surprised a lot of people because I asked him about influences, and one of the people he wanted to talk about most was Louis Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, the father of rhythm and blues. Um, you know, Sonny grew up just at the time when Louis Jordan was coming to the fore, and he loved that. And I remember years before that him, him talking about how much he liked Junior mm-hmm. Walker, so, you know, he knows Coleman Hawkins backwards and forwards. He certainly knows Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and, you know, the the more con- the, the, the great figures in jazz and Armstrong. But he, he listens beyond that. Um, I mean, who else would have brought Calypso into jazz the way he did? And, uh, and in fact, uh, the, the only guy I can think of in the jazz world who did Calypso routinely before Sonny Rollins was Louis Jordan. He actually made a lot of, uh, not a lot, but four or five Calypso sure. records with, with the Timpani sure, Five. Yeah. So uh you know he he's got these huge ears you, he's he's open to everything and and it comes out in different ways. You remember the record he did uh, Our Man in Jazz mm-hmm. uh with uh, half of Ornette Coleman's mm-hmm. group. Yep. I mean this was his attempt I think the first time to really come to grips. And one of the tracks on that is Jerome Kern's Dearly Beloved. And I, I, you know, I think it's one of the great comical masterpieces in jazz. It always makes me laugh aloud. At one point, he turns it into a Sousa march. I mean, he's just having so much fun with this material, and uh, he's he's very much alive to what the other musicians play. He's very he's very willing to be taken in a different direction. Uh, if the drummer gets going on something, you know, Sonny will go that way. But as you said, it's it's their job is to support him for the most part. He's there. He is the great virtuoso soloist of our time, and you're going to hear him. And I have to say, for years and years, when he had Clifton Anderson, his his nephew on trombone, 
you know, a lot of people complained that there were too many trombone solos because they didn't hear enough of Sonny. <laughs> sure. Right. Well, I was listening to some of Sonny's work with Don Cherry and Billy Higgins' Stockholm and Paris concerts this week, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, just uh, got a kick out of his introducing Don Cherry as a, as a member of the Ornette Coleman organization. Um, but yeah, the interplay between Sonny and Billy Higgins is just extraordinary. It's such an intense dialogue, and Sonny's well, rhythmic fluidity is uh, is as yeah. brilliant there as any I've ever heard. Um, yeah, Billy Higgins is another one of them. He's gone now, but uh, I never saw Billy Higgins where he wasn't astonishing, no matter who he performed with. Just one of the most brilliant drummers jazz has ever had. Mm -hmm. I recall an article, I think, that you wrote about seeing Billy for the first time, maybe at Boomers yes. or somewhere, and lo and behold, you were seated basically underneath, you know, the yeah, sock symbol, and lo and behold, you could hear everything clearly. He played with such subtlety and, um, and, and to finesse, the room. Yeah. 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 Um, I heard a review of, uh, of a popular singer a few years ago, uh, NPR review, and uh, the uh, reviewer uh, you know, in really hyperbolic terms, described this uh, singer as a great improviser. And afterwards, <laughs> I wondered, well, what language is left to, you know, describe Sonny Rollins? Well, I, we could begin with genius, because I think that's fair. I, I don't, there are not a lot of people I would call that, but I think genius is something a little bit different from the rest of us mortals. Um, and there is a quality of just, um, you know, he's he's just... He's 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 got the the music of the spheres coursing through his blood, and again, this is why he reminds me of Armstrong so much. Um, there are other musicians who are great on a lot of different levels, but if you really think of the the pinnacle players like Charlie Parker and Bud Powell Tatum, I mean, jazz has really had quite quite a lot in the last hundred years, and I would put Sonny uh, in the summit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of genius, you know, there's a way of looking at genius as, uh, you know, the daemon, like the inner daemon that, uh, that people are in touch with, that it's uh, a sort mm. of uh, true-to-oneself um, uh, quality. And, um, and, you know, we talk about Sonny as genius and celebrate him as such, but Sonny is always quick to point out, as he says, that he's an average Joe. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how average he is. He's... Oh God, I, I, you know what? I, I'm in my sixties. The first time I saw Sonny, I think I was fifteen or sixteen at the Vanguard. I've known him now for, I don't know, thirty-five years. And when I see him, I become sixteen again. <laughs> oh yes. I am completely, you know, in awe of him. I mean, he wants. He once gave me a hard time because I didn't come backstage after a concert. The idea that he would even want to see me, you know, was like just incredible to me but he has this kind of relationship with people um, and his memory is incredible I remember going backstage one night and I mentioned my daughter had just taken a flute she was I don't know nine or ten and I didn't, didn't see him for a few years after that and the first thing he said to me is is she still playing flute uh, you know he's he, he, he yeah, what was it? Dexter Gordon once said, "Thelonious Monk is not the boy next door." Hmm. Well, <laughs> Sonny may think he is, but he's 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 different. Well, indeed, but Sonny seems to be, you know, uh, not an elitist. Uh, he's no, he's he has not a common touch in a way, like like oh, Louis yes. Armstrong did. 
Absolutely. One of the things I love that he does, and he did this in Perugia, I'm sure you've seen him do this more than a couple of times, but when he gets really turned on and the audience storms the stage, he will walk right over to them and start blowing at them. Just, just you know, he, he is so involved with the audience. And I was in Perugia, you know, there were thousands of people in the stadium and I'm, dozens, if not hundreds of them were holding up you know, digital cameras and, and their phones or whatever the hell they use to take pictures. And I was thinking, you know, Keith Jarrett, one person takes a photograph and he has a complete meltdown and leaves the stage and screams and yells. Son, you can't even imagine Sonny doing that. It's like, bring him on. He's, he, he's not worried about people recording his music. He's, you know, he's, he's just, there's something definitely uh, very much egalitarian about him. Um, he, he, Oh, who is it? Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner used to do a routine about a rock singer, and they, they, the, the singer says uh, about his audience, "I am them, and they are me, but I have the mouth." And in a way, Sonny is the mouth, but we're all sort of reverberating together. When he played uh, Sweet Lilani at the outside at Lincoln Center some years ago, uh, everybody stood up and we were all, I mean, again, there were thousands of people and we were all sort of swaying. And I remember there was a woman standing next to me and she just turned around and said to nobody in particular, could you believe that you'd ever be swaying to Sonny Rollins playing Sweet Lilani outside at Lincoln Center? Mm -hmm. um, but those are the kinds of uh, feelings and events that he routinely creates. Yes. Uh, you know, mentioning that you feel like you're 16 again, I can totally relate to that. It, it happened just again a month ago in Montreal, and and I wonder what that's about. Sonny, I don't know Sonny the way you do, but I feel like he's the most important person in my life when I am in a concert hall with him. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the most important person in the room. I'm talking about in my life that he is <laughs> okay. that he is like the keeper of the keys. Well, he is. I mean, I hate to even say it, but a world without Sonny Rollins is not going to be the same place. Um, I feel the same way. He's there. You know, one of the things I think that we both uh, adore about him is the continuity he represents. You know, everything else can change. I mean, you know, uh, when he started playing, uh, people didn't have televisions in their homes. and uh, But Sonny is just like this laser. He just goes forward into the future, and at the same time, he's got everything in the past on his back. And uh, every time you go see him, there's a sense of, uh, of continuity with jazz history, with cultural history, with American history. I mean, he's got all of that. Is there any other musician, maybe Bob Dylan, you could say that about. I mean, mm -hmm. Dylan clearly doesn't go far as far back, but he goes back nearly fifty years, uh, as opposed to Sonny, who's been playing for seventy, um, or not seventy, but yeah, close to seventy. Yeah, yeah. sixty something. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can't think of anybody else who who who, who carries that much uh, in his music. Yeah, he's almost that he, much he's, history. He's archetypal in that way. He is really. Uh... He's the embodiment of uh, of a consciousness that uh, that it will it will not be maintained when he moves on. There's no one else to. Uh, There's no know, one else. No. Know. There's no one else. There's no one else who's had the stamina. You know, there are some great players, but 
there's nobody who gives as much as he does. I mean, you know, since his wife Lucille mm. died, everybody thought, you know, this he wouldn't get past this. And his response, <laughs> he, I mean, he has this big house in Germantown, and he's very much alone in it. And his response was basically to take on more work than he's ever had. He tours constantly and big jumps, you know, to South Pacific, Japan, India. You know, he's he's all over the world and, uh, and gives as much out as you and I have seen uh, every night. And so he's created these stadium audiences that, uh, uh, you know, I can't think of anybody else right now who, certainly in the jazz world, who can claim that. Yes. I was also, uh, you know, continually, you know, impressed, of course, with Sonny's image over the years. But the hairdo right now is just oh, it's it's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely, I, I, I had not seen it when I got to Perugia, and I thought, oh, my God, how cool is this? Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, Sonny has done a lot of things with his hair over the years. His most famous uh, uh, cut was the Mohawk. I think he was the first, long before punk mm -hmm. rock. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. Sonny had a Mohawk for a while. And uh, now he's just let his hair grow all the way out, and he looks like this great prophet. It's, it's steely gray, and uh, there's a lot of it. And he, it's it's like an aura around him. It's really quite. Simple. It reminds me. You mentioned Bob Dylan too. That I think they both have a kind of unkempt, though quaffed hairdo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this is a prophet's man. Indeed, well put. Yeah, um, I'm going to let you go in a minute. Let me just bring you back to McDowell for uh, for a minute mm -hmm. and um, and uh, give you a, a chance, an opportunity to say something about McDowell, Sonny Rollins, the importance of the metal. That uh, we've got the assault on the citadel uh, perspective, which is right yeah. on. But um, uh, you know, just to any further reflection on the significance of this medal ceremony on August fifteenth. Well, uh, you know, everybody who's been a, a colonist um, adores McDowell. Um, it's just one of the great gifts to artists in this country, and has been for a very, very long time. They are unbelievable people. They just. Everything they do is to cater to the creativity of the people who come up there. Um, but it's a very much closed place, except for one day in the year, Metal Day. August 15th is the only day that the place is open to outsiders. Um, it's a huge picnic, and, and it's a, you know, a great celebration of whichever artist is going to receive the medal. So bringing Sonny up there, um, it's, a big, it's, it's, a, it's a great honor for him. It's a great honor for McDowell. Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, a, a testimony to jazz, uh, to his place in it. And I, you know, I hope that more musicians will realize what they're offering, you know, a cabin in the woods with a piano, a good piano, um, and, and the time to just try to do things that you don't have to worry about. Is this commercial? Uh, is this going to earn, you know, my keep? Um, uh, so, you know, on a lot of different levels, this is, this is a big deal, and and uh, and I'm gl I'm just glad it's bringing more attention to McDowell because, uh, as I said, uh, if if you try, I don't think you it, it would be possible to calculate how many novels, poems, paintings, compositions um, have been uh, either entirely or usually partly uh, created up there. It's an amazing mm -hmm. place. Okay, well, thank you, Gary, and thanks for honoring Sonny Rollins, because like you alluded earlier, uh, he is the pure essence of the jazz artist at work, not renowned as a composer per se, uh, but, you know, um, 
but the real embodiment. Well, of, I, you know, let mm-hmm. me. Just, can I just add a, a mm-hmm. phrase here? Because I think he's he's one of the great oh. tunesmiths of his generation. <laughs> um, I think tunes like Erigen and and uh, uh, Doxy and Olio from the early years and more recent pieces like Global Warming uh, are some of the cleverest mm-hmm. and catchiest uh, themes in jazz. Um, some of them have become standards, but you know this is a talent too to to, to be able to sort of crystallize one idea and turn it into a 32-bar song or a 12-bar blues. So I think he, you know, there is, a, even on a conventional level, there's a, there's a genius to what he does. Absolutely, but still, it's a little distinct from the more, uh, the sort of uh, style of composition that McDowell Absolutely. was more accustomed to uh, celebrating and uh, and sort of mm-hmm. being a custodian of. So, um, uh, so anyway, uh, I will say hello to you on the 15th if I'm uh, nearby, and uh, thanks again for the conversation today, and uh, enjoy your time up there in Peterborough, and um Thanks again for honoring Sonny Rollins. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Good day. So.